everybody. This is Stephanie Ruper. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Naked Humanity podcast, where we take a deep, deep dive into what it means to be human. Today is episode number 51, and I'm having on Dr. Yessi Dezutter, a specialist in existentialist and late life concerns. Existentialist and late life concerns are extremely important. What do I mean by this? Existential concerns, we might say, although the word is used differently in different branches of the academy, these concerns are questions like, what is the meaning of life? What happens when I die? How do I make sense of my purpose? And all these sorts of things. There are deep, pressing questions and something that is so important for understanding and relating to these deep, pressing questions for us as a species in general is understanding how people process them. I am a scholar of religion and spirituality. I have a master's degree in theology. My PhD is in religion and science. And I sort of live into or talk about and help people talk about these deep existential questions. That's what I study, deep existential questions. But I am not a scientist in the sense that I don't do studies. I don't observe how people make sense. I don't observe how people tell stories about their lives and cope and cultivate acceptance and all this sort of stuff. But today's guest does. This is hugely important work and not very many people in the world are doing it. So it is a huge honor. We are so lucky uh, to have Yessi on this show. And I had a fantastic chat with her that was actually quite good for me personally as an academic. And you'll have to forgive me because I do ask a few questions that I think you might be less interested in than I am. Questions about uh, how to study these kinds of things and how people in the study of religion and people in psychology might look at them differently. Uh, Those questions are very important to me because I'm trying to figure out how to best do this, right? These are hugely important questions for academics, maybe a little bit less so from you, but we do also do things like talk about uh, the wisdom that we observe happening in late stage meaning of life processes, right? We do uh, chat about how things like acceptance and contentment and working through questions of meaning can be actively useful for people at all stages in life. And we talk about how existential crises, this isn't the language we use, but existential crises do happen and events do happen and we can build resilience to the stress of these events, we can build our emotional resources if, uh, if we engage in, in some of these processes. And definitely, especially if we learn uh, from what uh, our guest is studying all the time and also unearthing about late stage life meaning-making processes and the like. Uh, it's all, it's really amazing. I'm going to read you a little bit about Yessi Desutter, and I'm very sorry. It's uh, she's from Belgium, and, and I'm unfortunately, these are not languages, uh, none of the languages spoken on the European continent are ones that I am I'm good at uh, pronouncing. So uh, please forgive me for that. Yessi Dezutter is an assistant research professor at the University KU Leuven. She conducts research that sits at the boundaries of positive psychology, existential psychology, and gerontology. Although she has published papers on the topics of religion and chronic pain, her most recent interests have been in the topics of how older adults can age in a meaningful and positive way, 
how meaning in life can be experienced at highly advanced age, and how processes as forgiveness or developmental tasks are related with positive aging. There's a website, her lab has a website if you want to read more about her work, uh, and I will put it in the show notes. It's deserteryessie.wixsite.com slash meaning in late life. Uh, and so, or at least that is her personal website. And I will link to all of these things in the show notes. She also makes some recommendations for great books uh, that you can read if you want to dive more into how to talk about these deep existential questions. This is actually something that I, as the host of this podcast, and as somebody who is constantly inviting you to write into the show, uh, am always dealing with. People do write in and say, I'm struggling with my meaning making. Do you have resources for me? Actually, I do. This is my job. This is my specialty. And so please do reach out if you are looking for resources in any way uh, to make sense of things, I would be more than happy to help. You know how to get at me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Stephanie Ruper. This is Naked Humanity, episode number 51. And without further ado, let us proceed to chatting with Dr. Yessi Desutter. Hi, uh, welcome Yessi. Thanks. Thanks for uh, the invitation. Yeah, thank you very much. I am I'm really honored uh, to be talking with you. I have been uh, working really hard on social media things and really feel the need to like engage some discourse here. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so so thank you so much. Perhaps we can get started with you just like telling us what it is you you study and why. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I started my, my studies a long time ago when I was a doctoral student focusing on um, religion, religious attitudes, and the connection with mental health. But then during my uh, doctoral process, uh, near to the end of it, I realized that, um, especially in a secularized society like Belgium is, that um, religion is for a lot of the people something not close to them anymore. It's difficult. They are not familiar with the language, uh, with the culture around it. Um, but they still have very deep questions with regard to their existence. And especially experiencing meaning in their life and mm. purpose in their life. Um, having the idea that they matter um, is something that came across the interviews and um, the service that I did. So after that, I decided to, to focus more on the existential concerns in, uh, in life and then with a an, uh, an specific focus on um, vulnerable older people. Um, so mixing a bit the existential psychology, positive psychology with gerontology. So that's, that's my domain. Yeah, yeah I, I actually, I really love that and I really appreciate it because I grew up in a non-religious, very secular home, but always really craved a lot of depth. And I've sort of struggled throughout my entire life and in academia to find a space where I can talk about what I would call existential concerns or deep, you know, Tillich would call ultimate concerns. Mm-hmm. Um, it that's That sort of doesn't look at these weird categories between that which is religious and that which isn't religious, because it always just seems to me like we're all human coping with being human in in different contexts. And it's the whole distinction between 
know, religion, spirituality, meaning making or whatever never really made sense to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree on that. But on the other side, it's still a very difficult topic when you collaborate with, with people. Uh, I have at the moment uh, three doctoral students working on a project where we um, collaborate with the Faculty of Theology. Um, and the debates are very interesting, but also very difficult, because then you realize that you really look from a specific um, disciplinary background, which mm-hmm. is psychology in my case, and then words like spirituality or existentialism, they mean something different depending on uh, the discipline that person is coming from. So I agree that, that it's sometimes um, a hindrance for doing research, but at the on the other hand, it's also sometimes necessary to explain what exactly is your stance and um, be aware that this might not be the same for another person coming from another discipline. And that we still need to work together <laughs> on these topics. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so forgive me, audience, people listening, if, if this gets boring to you, but I'm I'm very interested <laughs> Um in, in these uh, s- sort of scholarly divisions and, and trying to navigate them, because I also I came into my work wanting to use the word existential, but I found that in religious studies, when I used the word existential, people got really upset because they thought I was referring to like specific ideas from Heidegger or what have you. Um, and I I feel like a, such a big part of our problem is that we just we like we don't have good language yet for studying what it is that that we want to study. Existential, I think, is is the closest I can get. Do you or is it like in the psychological literature? Do people actually? study like something they call existential concerns or existential questions like how do you like talk about this in the in your academic work um well i mainly link it with existential psychology um that's often more like the therapeutic uh parts of psychology um but there are also other domains where it receives quite some attention like in um, palliative medicine, mm. uh, also in nursing. When you go to the care traditions, um, then you see that there's a lot of interest for existential themes, existential questions. How do we cope with it? How can we offer um, guidance with existential suffering? Um, and yes, I do use the word existential, <laughs> although other colleagues then talk about spirituality. Right. Um, yeah. I have, and in my email to you, I have fallen into using the word spirituality because I it just seemed to be the easiest way to communicate with the largest number of people about what I was talking about. Um, yeah, I find that very interesting. And also, I think it's very telling that you can find a lot of discussion about this sort of thing in practical fields, right? I, f- I feel like existentialism as a movement and also just these deep concerns are so present in our culture, but the academy is the little, you know, like if if these things are being studied in a way that seem like they're effective for people, then we should be paying attention to them. Although we're kind of not really, at least not in my field. Yeah, I think that's true. It's, it's still very like a very narrow and sometimes it's approached like a bit of fluffy domain. Yeah. My, co- my colleagues told me a few weeks ago, it's, it's fluffy what you're doing. <laughs> and then I have the idea, no, it's not fluffy. It's something every, everybody is confronted with. So how can it be fluffy? <laughs> right. Um, but I think it's, um, it's still very vague. 
And um, but that doesn't mean that we do not need to study it. I think it's the uh, other way around. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you are you are right that within the larger psychological domain, that's focusing on existential concerns is still uh, not so present at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So let's dive into a little bit of what, you know, cause this will also, this will be very fruitful for my career. I'm writing a talk right now on existential crises and I, I know very little. So um, you, you mentioned this is something that everybody has experienced. So would you say that like having like deep ultimate questions or, or existential concerns is actually universal, you know, cause well, anyway, I'll just leave it at that. Is it universal? Because I, I and my friends have it, but just because people I know, you know, worry deeply about these things, does that, does everybody? Um, I think that's a very interesting question. And I don't know if we can ever have a very empirical answer on that. Um, within my team, we discussed that a few weeks ago and um, we have the idea that it probably is something universal because it touches to everything we are as a human being, but it does not mean that everybody reflects on it. Um, And not everybody is able to communicate about it. So people might think about it, but keep it inside. Others might feel something, but do not have any words to pronounce it. And still others do communicate about it or read about it and discuss it with others. So I think there's a a broad range in... um, possibilities and not everything is like overt it might be that it's within the person and it might be even that the person is not able to distinguish that this is really an existential concern or question it might just be an itchy feeling Mm. so do you think the people are it's like very possible for people to be subconsciously impacted by concerns about death or meaning or purpose or whatever and just like not really know it I think that some people might struggle with it, but because they are not learned to have words for it, they are not able to really bring it out uh, outside themselves. Yeah, yeah, that's um, that's very helpful. And I actually, I theorize about existential concerns in, in a very similar way uh, in my in my doctoral work. So um, why what is it about... Uh, researching, you said that you have a particular interest in people in, in later stages of life. Wow. Why? What is it about that group that is, is particularly interesting or fruitful? Uh, well, from a, a theoretical point of view, uh, I have the idea that at the um, end stage of life, people are more confronted with the existential concerns because of the whole finality uh, point. Um, also, existential loneliness and um, what has my life been? Is it, was it worthwhile? Are questions that then pop up? Um, I often frame it also in, in Ericsson's developmental theory, where the final stage of life is focusing on integrity and um, despair, and where you need to try to come to terms with your past life. And of course, you you need to find some kind of coherence in your life narrative, see the purpose of it, have the idea that it matters, and that all links to meaning in life and um, purpose in life, etc. So that's the the theoretical part. And on the other hand, it's also a more personal story. Um, My grandmother, which I was very close to, um, suffered from Alzheimer's. 
And I've been with her in the last years that she was suffering from it. Um, and although she was somebody who did not really talk about those things, you noticed that in declining and in um, more suffering, that, that those things were really present in her experience. So it's like uh, both a more scientific, theoretic part and a more personal part. Right. Yeah. I, well, I definitely, my personal research is motivated by panic attacks I had about dying when I was a young child. And I think often people go into academia because we do have these, you know, somewhere buried in us, um, these, these questions. I think that that's very useful. Is that empirically demonstrable? Like, is it empirically true that people do confront these meaning questions and purpose questions later on in life? like more than say when they're more younger? Than, um, I don't know if there's any data that really has that like on a large scale. Um, in, in my data, when focusing on it, then we see of course that there are high levels, but it's not like I, I have really comparable data. I, um, I, I also did some studies with students and there we also see that a part of the students are struggling with meaning life issues, for example. So I don't think it's something that only comes up at the end of life. But of course, the context of the end of life triggers more fundamental questions with regard to our existence. Right. And would, very generally speaking, are there like variations in intensity, right? Like might kids in uni or college think about it and wonder, but then all of a sudden there's maybe like an enhanced urgency when you know you're at the end stages of your life and you're trying to make sense of it all? Yeah, I have that idea that it's, especially for some people, that it's very important to try to come to a coherent narrative of their life. Mm. Yeah. And that's then linked, of course, with um, processes of uh, acceptance and forgiveness and uh, making um, restore relationships who were broken in the past. All those things are more urgent than in previous life stages. Yeah. Interesting. Um, you've, you've mentioned narrative a couple of times. So um, I think actually the lens of narrative is really useful. I feel like we're constantly narrating our lives and that's the, the, the way that we make sense of them. Is, is that sort of what you would see as like the foundational piece of what like making meaning is? Is it sort of telling these stories? What is it about stories that are so important? Uh, I think that stories help us to frame uh, events that are out of our control or even that are um, parts of us that are difficult and that with making it within a story that we have some kind of grip on it. Um, although I do not think that everybody does that. I think that it can be a strength if you are able to um, reflect on it and, and make it into a narrative. But I don't think that's the, the main um, process that everybody uses. Mm. Um, you said you, it can be a strength. Do you mean that it it is helpful for you? Uh, what do you mean by strength? Yeah, I mean that it might be um, a help when you are confronted with a with a stressful event, and you are able to implement that stressful event within your uh, life story. And I mean, with stressful events, I mean it can also be like. Um, 
uh, a relationship that is that is broken or uh, um, a loss within a, fringe, a friendship. It doesn't have to be like a really traumatic, highly traumatic event. Uh, I think sure. also small events that are disrupting our functioning, um, if we are able to try to f- reframe that in a way that it fits within our narrative, I think mm-hmm. it might help us. Yeah. Yeah. Is um, do you find that these narratives are sort of linked to a broader picture? You know, we tend to think that, say, morality or death or meaning or whatever, like needs to be hooked on a god or somebody who's like telling this story. Like, does there are these narratives very self-contained, or do they usually reference some sort of larger picture or meaning? Um, I think that's a really uh, personal. Mm. I think that uh, I have the idea that everybody has like a meaning system. Um, although system does seems to uh, refer more to a solid, robust thing. And I think it's more dynamic. Um, and of course, this meaning system can be filled with aspects coming from one religion, many religious, spiritual traditions, philosophies, etc. And if you have like a coherent frame that you can use for your own construction of narratives that might of course make it easier. Um, I think especially in the past when like in Belgium, we had Catholic, uh, Roman Catholic church. And when things happened, it was just placed within the framework that was present. There wasn't large overarching story and you were raised with that. So you could easily reframe things within the story. Mm. Um, At this moment, this is far more difficult because the grand stories are disappearing and everybody needs to search how he or she can place it within a personal narrative. Mm. Yeah, I I think that that's one of the more defining, you know, important defining characteristics of our time that maybe we don't talk about uh, as much as as we should is how do we deal with the fact that we have to construct our own stories? I mean, we don't always do it consciously, but we're not being handed these, you know, traditional narratives or explanations. And I think that that actually has a really, unfortunately, I, I can't think of a way to study it, but I feel like that makes a psychological difference. Yeah, I think it's that it takes far more energy from you uh, when you really need to construct your personal uh, narrative. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it's rooted in a tradition, um, it's there and you can just go to the source and use it. <laughs> uh, and you can also feel the sharedness with others, uh, both in time, others in the past who shared the same as you, um, but also in, in the now, in the moment, in the presence. Um, this is also something that is often missing when we are constructing our own personal narrative. And then it makes it more dis- difficult to uh, share our narrative with others because they might see totally different. Mm. Do, do you think that, and again, I know I'm asking a lot of questions that probably don't have a lot of empirical backing and I'm very sorry. I know that <laughs> when I talk with, when I talk with people who like work with empirical data and I ask them questions that like might be outside empirical data sets, I know that I'm like, you know, transgressing in some way. Cause, um, but I, I'm just, I'm curious. And if you don't have an answer, don't feel like you need to have one. Um, that being said, Oh, I had a question and now it's gone because I was so excited about talking about empiricism. Um, Meaning people's story, empiricism. Oh, uh, do you have a sense? It's okay if you don't. um, If there is like more loneliness in this this personal telling of the narrative, is that actually 
something that can make us feel uh, lonelier than we might have in that other more embedded narrative traditional framework? Might be. Yeah. But I'm not sure about that. You can imagine then that the fact that you do not share a general narrative makes it more difficult to communicate, um, that you need to search for your own words within that narrative to um, that links back to the experience that you have. Um, but I'm not sure if that really then increases loneliness, for example. That would be interesting if we would be able to test that. <laughs> Yeah, I have a lot of ideas that I think would be interesting to test if possible. I um, I do, there is perhaps, uh, and I think that maybe there is data for this. Um, there is some sort of assurance or comfort from that comes from, say, belonging to a church where everybody like believes the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. um, sharing beliefs is important. Of course, we tend to surround ourselves with people who share our beliefs anyway, but it's, it's, it's just a little, it's a little different. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, okay, we can bring this back to your empirical work. So uh, these uh, meaning making and stuff, say like it, intentional or not, this is uh, something that you have said is, is helpful. Do we see like actual positive outcomes in terms of mental and or physical health when people are like engaged with these questions about meaning? Um, I think there are specific meaning making processes that can be helpful. And that's something that we have seen in our data, yes. Um, before focusing really on uh, older adults, we had some studies running with chronic pain patients. Mm -hmm. And there we noticed that um, reappraising the situation of their pain and reframing it within their meaning system was indeed positive in how they coped with their pain condition. Um, and I think there are many studies showing that indeed meaning-making strategies might be helpful when you're confronted with problems that cannot be easily fixed. Hmm. Um, that's very helpful. Yeah, thank you. Uh, okay, so how does that, uh, does that have a specific application or result when applied to people uh, who are again, in the, end, in the later stages of their lives, is that, say, different from the adult population in general, or no? Um, well, what we see in, in the data that we now have is that uh, our older adults tend to use specific meaning-making strategies more, well, it seems that they use them more than uh, younger adults, for example, or emerging adults. Uh, we have many, <laughs> many older adults when we are um, interviewing them, uh, even when we take service, they they like to be visited, so they talk a lot. So we have many material outside the service, um, and they often refer to um, acceptance uh, within the end stage of their life, not a passive kind of acceptance, but more like an an, an active aspect of yes, you need to take life like it is, and it's that strengthens you. Um, and they often also refer to you need to be content. Is it content in English mm -hmm. uh, with your life? And that can be uh, a resource to cope with all the problems that you have at the end of life. And that's something that we haven't seen in, in our data with emerging adults, for example. So that might be something specific within that life stage. Yeah. And of course, not every older, older adult is using that or is able to do that. Um, but I think acceptance might be something powerful in 
in late life. Um, and maybe some other techniques or processes like reappraisal or downward comparison might not be so useful anymore. Um, Right. And also I, there must, there must also be some sort of shift in terms of projecting narratives into the future and coming to terms with the parts of your narrative that have already happened. Right. Because you've simply gone through, you know, you've gone through the course of your life. Yeah. And the, 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 the special thing is that um, many of the older adults who are satisfied with their life, um, they refer to a source of their meaning in life at a given moment um, and they refer to goals that are already accomplished. So with, with the younger people, we see that they put goals in the future and they attract or experience meaning out of the idea that they are trying to, to go and pr um, pursue that, that goal. Um, but with the older people, we see that they really uh, refer to goals that are already accomplished. Yes, I was able to raise my children and it gives me so such a experience of meaning in my life. My life was purposeful because I was able to raise my children. So it's it's indeed another um, another way of, of framing it and another way of yeah handling it. Yeah. So okay, wow, that's great. So um, these sort of uh, acceptance type practices and ideas and the sort of resilience that comes from that, we see them later in life, but we can still do them younger in life too, right? Like yeah, of sort of the contentedness, accepting life, you know, what it is. And I think mm -hmm. that that's, I think that that's very important because I'm, I don't know what it's like in Belgium, but at least in the United States, we, there is very commonly this idea that, uh, youthful people are the important ones and the elderly are, like have nothing to teach us. Right. And I, there is actually probably so much wisdom there, but maybe even it's kinds of wisdom that are hard to, you know, hard to understand or articulate or hard to see. Like we don't necessarily see these acceptance practices and contentment and that sort of thing happening, but uh, there is some kind of wisdom there. Yeah. That's the same in Belgium. And um, I think um, we are using a more, economical perspective of looking at life and then an older adult um, seems not, not longer valuable. Uh, he or she is not able to offer things, is not productive anymore, is slower, uh, has a higher cost. So those are all like negative aspects that show us that older adults are not able, able to provide something mm. um, important for us. Yeah. And that's, I think the, the result of that is that we indeed do not see that there is so many wisdom in how they cope with things and how they live their life. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and you said that you, you've done some research specifically on people who struggle with Alzheimer's or mm. do we see these same sort of patterns there? Um, well, we started the we started the projects on meaning in life um, with uh, persons with Alzheimer, um, and our main idea was when you look at meaning in life in the literature, there is a strong focus on cognitions, um, and of course, with the older adults with Alzheimer, we know that uh, there is a cognitive decline. So we were wondering um, if their experience of meaning in life is indeed also decreasing when their cognitive capacity capabilities are decreasing. And so we started with an, 
quantitative longitudinal study and also a qualitative longitudinal study. And one of the first things that we did was asking them one open question and ask them to describe how they experience meaning in their life. And the thing is that even with the older adults who are in more moderate stages of their disease, um, they are still able to offer us um, significant and, and valuable descriptions of how they experience meaning in their life who are very similar to how we describe meaning in our lives. Um, so that's something very, I think, good and um, promising. Uh, and that makes also, I think, that it's important to continue focusing on that aspect of experiencing meaning in life, even if older adults are in later stages of their dementia. Um, with the quantitative study, we also noticed that and that's very much in line with the general literature, that the higher you experience or the higher levels of meaning uh, in your life, that it's related with better um, psychological functioning. So the older adults with, um, with Alzheimer's with high levels of meaning in life suffered less from depressive symptoms and had higher life satisfaction compared to their counterparts who had lower levels of uh, meaning in their life. Um, which is, I think, also something important uh, if you take it into elderly care, because all our older adults were in nursing homes. Um, and within a nursing home context, the focus still is very much on the biomedical care, the physical care. And if you then see that something like experiencing your life as meaningful is linked with depression and with life satisfaction, it might be necessary to move a bit further away from the sole focus on uh, biomedical care. Mm, yeah, I definitely have very strong feelings about the strong focus on on biomedical care because we do like it is possible to just throw drugs at a problem, right? But humans are yeah. humans are very holistic animals, you know, and, and we have feelings and and they matter. Um and it sort of seems like you know, there's this question in your study of which causes which, right? Does meaning cause yeah. positive outcomes or do the positive outcomes do, yeah. meaning you know and, and the drugs just so you could just throw drugs at it but I feel like if you try to enhance people's experiences of meaning then you can actually get a sense for how this can help you know help people cope and actually help remediate this, um, these sort of symptoms but you really don't know until you try this approach mm -hmm. um, yeah within the studies we sometimes use meaning in life as a potential predictor that indeed influences uh, over time mental health. But we also see that in other studies that we have done, that meaning in life is a moderator that might indeed influence the relation between, for example, life stressors and depressive symptoms. Um, until now, we do not have data that really clarify, clarifies how the direction of the effects is uh, and I think, I suppose that it's uh, bidirectional and it's, that it will be influencing uh, each other. Um, but even if that is the case, then I think it's still worthwhile to focus more on that uh, aspect within elderly care. Mm. Yeah, yeah, abs I, I absolutely agree. And I, there have also been, uh, I think, uh, studies that show that the uh, empathy and compassion and just connection that can be experienced in talking with somebody about these issues or knowing that you're not alone when you're working through these issues can be really big, right? And so there are so many different ways to approach things 
you know, mm-hmm. like uh, end of life care and depression during end of life care, um, like a very holistic approach. And that's why I loved, I like highlighted your biopsychosocial existential approach um, to healing, because I really do believe that as like embodied and also intellectual and emotional creatures, you have to take care of all the bits of those creatures, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's something that I find important. And I have the idea that it's, it's also within the, the the care professionals that they also find it important, but at the same time, addressing that existential parts, it's also very difficult. Difficult because there is a lack of knowledge on it. Um, I talked with colleagues within nursing and within um, gerontology and within medicine, and addressing existential questions is not something that is teached at schools or universities. And at the same time, it's also coming very close to your own functioning. Mm-hmm. And I think you really need to reflect on what are your existential concerns before you can go to uh, to a patient or to an older person and try to have a meaningful conversation with regard to those topics. Um, it's something that with the results of our studies, we are now making a an, an workshop for uh, elderly care professionals, uh, both on the level of more the directors as well as, as the floor um, So care assistants, how it's called in in Belgium, as well as nurses. Um, And we really ask them to reflect on what is it for you experiencing meaning in your life? And is it the same as happiness or is it something different? Um, And if you look at your patients or at your um, residents within your nursing home, uh, how do you think they experience meaning in their life? And is it different from what you experience, what do you need and what do they need? And I think it's something very important, um, but it's also something difficult. Yeah, I, I appreciate that a lot. And I think sort of these questions about fundamental human feelings or desires or needs are so important because I think you're absolutely correct that like our self-understanding can be so different from somebody else's self-understanding. And if we're not actively engaging, I mean, that's why this podcast exists, right? Like it's basically trying to chat about or, you know, get close to the heart of all of the different kinds of things that make, that can make humans tick. Because if mm-hmm. we understand, then we can like hold space for it. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. you don't, you don't even necessarily have to do anything. You just have to, you know, hold space for your, your patient's needs about, Meaning, I'm curious how you, so if you have people reflecting about themselves, what do you have them, like, how do they then take that to their relationship with their patients? Um, well, mostly after that, after that part, we then go to how can you really uh, apply that within your setting? And then we try to find um, small situations or small vignettes or cases uh, where they really can apply that um, that reference to existential concerns. And that's very often, it's very basic. I mean, um, nurses who are uh, opening the curtains when the, the day starts and saying to their uh, resident, um, okay, it's a new day, sun is shining, everything is nice. And then the resident is like, no, everything is not nice. Oh, yes, it is, it is, sun is shining. And they continue. But when they make the reflection to, okay, maybe it's good to ask quickly, what, what is it that's, that is bothering you? Mm-hmm. Uh, it does not mean that there then comes a huge story. It might mean that they had a bad night or that they were thinking about their uh, husband that they, uh, that they lost. 
um, but creating the space and the time that it can be set, I think it's very important. And often we just overrule that because it's sensitive, it's difficult, it might cause pain inside our own um, personality because it touches things that we find difficult. Um, but often it means a lot for the residents that they really feel that there is some time and there is some space to bring it out. Mm. So it's almost sort of practicing the art of uh, listening, you know, actively listening and paying attention and sort of setting aside your own you know, preconceptions about, you know, what the best way to go about something is and just sort of letting this person uh, speak or um, unpack or feel or whatever it is that they need to do. Like you said, it could be huge or it could be small, but it is almost just like listening, you know, and being present. Yeah, I think that's that's very important. And I think it's more about an, an attitude that you have and like a perspective wherein you place your care activities and not really about having one specific activity focused on making your life narrative, for example. I think it's also useful. But having those yeah, having the, the ground layer of an, an open attitude and um, approaching the older adults with the idea, okay, existential concerns are or can be important within your life. I should pick up the signals that indeed for, for you at that moment, it's bothering you or you're struggling with it. Um, and then picking it, picking it up. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned briefly that somebody who is, is having these conversations might not want to talk about it because it, it disturbs them personally in mm -hmm. some way. Yeah. Um, and this is something that I do often, I, I think, encounter in the world is um, like, an, like an aversion to uh, these more existential or ultimate concerns uh, for, any, for any variety of reasons because of past pain or um, simple fear of, of the depth and you know, potential negativity that you might find in there. So have you sort of found resources or ideas uh, to sort of relax that, you know, that immediate defensive reaction or the sort of fear around engaging these questions? Well, I think if it's, if it's about the fear that you are not able to help or that you feel that you do not have the background to do it, I think in that case, that um, psychoeducation might be very helpful. So I really would love to see that within the curricula of, for example, nurses, that there is one part focusing on existential struggling in late life. I think it would be so good. Um, next to that, you have, of course, a more personal side of your own um, small or large traumas, uh, things you need to cope with. And I think that's far more difficult. Um, but I also think if people are aware of that, and you know that you are not able within that moment of your life uh, to cope with that, then you can just uh, signal it to one of your colleagues. Mm -hmm. um, and I think if you are really working within a team, then it should be fine that you know, okay, uh, within this period of my life, I'm really not able to talk about loneliness or about that because it's coming too close. But I know that I can pass a question to one of my colleagues and they will pick it up. Hmm. But that's um, of course in the ideal world. <laughs> right. And, and like, so general, generally speaking for all of us who don't have colleagues that can, you know, take these off of our plates for us, um, or maybe you've like observed, I don't know if you've studied this, um, how people sort of approach 
these topics that can be really sensitive, right? I think uh, some people like me, for example, like can't get enough of them and it's a very comfortable space, but often it can be a very uncomfortable space, uh, whether you're uh, in a early stage adulthood or later stage adulthood. So are there, have you seen ways that people sort of like transition into thinking about these things more intentionally, or is that not something that really has any empirical data yet? Um, I do not have any data on that, no. And there might be some data out there, but I'm not familiar with it. No, mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very interesting. And I think the, the part of the reason I'm interested in it is ties back to what we were discussing about these narratives, right? And how there was once this narrative that was easier to plug yourself into, you know, that you were given and now we're sort of constructing our own narratives. And I am just very interested in how to help people do that in a way that uh, is healthy and productive. Uh, And I I think uh, I'm looking, like I'm actively looking for resources to do that. And I know there's tons about meaning making and stuff in in the psychology literature. Um, But with this existential perspective being added into it, you know, like you said, the biopsychosocial existential, whatever. um, I I think that that's, I think that that's really um, sort of important if we're going to actually try to come up with ways to, facilitate these kinds of um, changes that you're seeing or looking at happening for people. Sorry, that was just a lot of me talking. (laughs) (laughs) I agree with it. (laughs) But uh, I'm not sure if if, uh, we already have enough data to show that. And um, yeah, I I agree that's (laughs) very important. Yeah, I was... You know, I'm I'm finishing my my PhD currently and looking at next steps, and I'm like, goodness, am I going to have to get a PhD in psychology now? Like, because um, <laughs> there's, I mean, there's over, there's always so many studies that you wish were done or whatever. So um, I've I've definitely thought about it, but um, it's very important, and I'm very grateful. And we're actually coming up in around 45 minutes. These things always go so fast. Um, I'm wondering if there's anything uh, important to your work or uh, anything else really at all that you, that you would like to share before we go? Something important about my work <laughs> or not important, whatever, anything you feel like important. saying in a public platform now is your chance. A chance. Uh, but I do think that we really need to pay attention, uh, at the existential part of life. Mm-hmm. And I think we see it everywhere in society. I mean, I'm focused on elderly care, but you also see it in palliative care. You see it in general care. You see it in schools. You see it in families. You see it in disrupted relationships. Um, All those aspects often are linked with existential parts and existential struggling. Uh, Although it might not be so visible at the first glance, but underlying, it has often to do with core aspects of our being. And I think that having more knowledge on that and also applying that knowledge within the context and within the society is something that we really need to do in the future, the near future, as soon as possible. <laughs> yeah. um, that, is, that is literally what I'm, what I'm trying to do, what I'm trying to help people with. Do you, have any, do you know of any books or resources or whatever that people can you know, turn to to sort of get more in touch with this existential stuff other than like existentialist books? Um, I think it depends. I mean, um, 
you have, of course, the books of Viktor Frankl and um, Irvin Yalom uh, and Tillich, who are great. And mm -hmm. if you are more into like um, some not so heavy literature, Irvin Yalom also wrote some very nice uh, romance um, on a topic. And if you really want to know something more about meaning making, then I think Crystal Park's work is really great. Um, yeah, but there are very, there is a variety of colleagues working uh, on the meaning in life topics um, from different angles. There is very nice work done in your part of the world, in the States, uh, with regard to meaning in life from a more social psychological focus, the work of Mike Steger mm -hmm. and um, Laura King, really great. Um, in European Nordic countries, there's also work done on meaning making in more secularized societies. Um, so yes, there is quite a lot out there. Good. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I am a little bit familiar with that academic literature, but I think that those more popular readings, I think are, are very helpful and, and good resources to point people to. And I didn't know Irving Yalom wrote a romance yeah. books or whatever. Yeah, so <laughs> that's really nice. I'm, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to read that. He was actually the first person I invited on this podcast. Oh, really? Yeah. But, uh, I said to him when I emailed him that, uh, I would absolutely understand if at this point in his life, when he's thinking so much about the meaning and whatnot, if he didn't have time, it would be okay. And he was like, you're absolutely correct. I'm spending so much time thinking about the meaning of my life. And I was like, okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> But yeah, a, a fantastic author um, mm -hmm. and writer, everybody listening. So, um, okay, I'm going to let you go. Thank you so much. Uh, I This has been very helpful, actually, for me personally, for resources, for, for my work. Um, and I'm sure I'm sure has been helpful for the listeners as well. So thank you, Yessie. Yeah, it was a pleasure. It was really nice uh, talking to you. Yeah. Yeah, Thanks. thank you. Um, okay, so for everybody listening... Um, I will tell you a little bit about, oh, do you have any, one more thing, Yessie, like uh, websites or Twitters or whatever you want people to go to? You don't have to. I just am asking. Um, yes, we have, a, we have the website of our lab, uh, which has a, a bit of a difficult name, so <laughs> it might not be so handy to just uh, okay. mention it. Uh, it's a, a Wix site on um, Meaning in Late Life Lab. That's the name of my lab. Okay. I will find it and put a link to it in the show notes. So people, if, okay, they're, if they're interested in these questions, they can go yeah, read nice. about it. Thanks. Yeah. Um, okay. So thank you. And anybody, if you have any questions, please do get at me. Uh, thank you again, uh, Yessi and everybody else. And I will talk to you next week. <laughs>